Welcome to the Meditation Ward. My name is Nadia Ward. I'm really excited to bring you this podcast where I talk to interesting people who also happen to be meditators. We talk about their stories, the way they got into meditation, and any tips or tools they'd like to share with you. Each week, there's a second episode, a guided meditation that we hope you'll enjoy. If you would like to start your own meditation practice, we would love you to check out our course, Exploring Meditation, a seven-week course designed by me, Nadia. Each week, you learn new tips and tools and how to create your own personal meditation practice that works for you. Follow us at The Meditation Ward on Instagram or go to the website, themeditationward.com. Sign up for our emails and check out our courses. And now, on to the episode. Hi, everybody. I'm Nadia Ward, and I'm so happy that you're here at The Meditation Ward. Today, I am very lucky to have Di Cerullo. She is a social justice advocate for diversity, equity, inclusion, and a voice for foster children. She is a foster care survivor herself, a white Hispanic queer mother of two, and she has a generous ability to hold space for trauma survivors. Di also uses meditation alongside therapy to help her with her ADHD and her own healing. Her second book, Indomitable, A Foster Care Story, releases tomorrow, September 5th right it absolutely does <laughs> congratulations on your book thank you thank you it's very much like give, being given a due date for a for a child's birth where you're just like woo this is it this is the time no matter what this is the end date <laughs> yeah your first book was more about diversity equity inclusion in the workplace right so if I'm honest, I always knew I was going to have to write the book that Indomitable became. But um, in an effort to sort of figure out what publishing looked like, what writing a book looked like, I decided that I wanted to make my first book about work. Um, that, that way there, if, you know, even if Indomitable blew up or did not, I would be like, okay, well, you know, at least I, at least I know, you know, what it's like. I won't only be known for this book. I'll be known for the work I do. I'll be known because you don't want to really be known for your trauma. That's something you avoid, like as somebody who survives trauma all of your life, you don't want to be known for it. So I decided that I was going to do a book on my work first. And then immediately everybody who knew me was like, this was not the book you were supposed to write. Where is the other book? And it was just so much like, that's again, pretty, I'm, that's pretty rude. Yeah, no, you know, I have, I keep really, I keep really honest friends in my circle because I need that, you know, I need it. And um, so kind of everybody was like, yeah, you know, this is a great book, but it's not the book you were supposed to write. So I just realized that I was going to have to, um, buckle down and finally tell this story in a way that it needed to be told in. And that was just going to be, of course, so, so much work and so much healing and so much looking at things that I, in boxes that I effectively hadn't looked at in, in quite a few years. So it was, it was quite an undertaking when I actually sat down to write it. Yeah. And without the first book though, you wouldn't have had like the skills right. of book writing right. exactly. and publishing and yeah, exactly. And I wouldn't have felt, I wouldn't have told it in the way that I ended up finally telling it because I knew, um, I knew it had to be told with such like a startling honesty and vulnerability in order to do it any justice, in order for people to see it and say, 
yes, I relate to this. This happened to me too. I couldn't go into the story with anything less than absolute honesty. And so writing the first book helped me do that because I realized how people receive my work typically. Um, and, you know, when you're when you're a little bit younger, you think to yourself, oh, I want to be liked by everybody. I want everybody to receive this in the way that I intended it. You get a little bit older and you're like, people will self-reject. <laughs> you know, like either, either people will get me or they won't. But either way, that's not for me to decide. And that's nothing I can change. So yeah. um, it was good. Learned- that- I've also yeah, learned no. it's also not personal. Of like course, we, of course, it feels it's not. so personal when we it put does. so much work into something, and it it's really just somebody else's perspective of how they Absolutely. portray themselves through the situation. That's exactly right, and I have had people, you know, say to me, "Oh, well, what if people don't like you?" And it's like that's not really about me. If people don't like me, that's not about me. If people self-reject, that's not about me. That's because people don't feel. Like I am showing them a mirror and they are not enjoying what they see or they are not enjoying what I've done. And therefore they have to, that's about their trauma. That can't be for me to carry, you know? So it's, it took me a long, long time. You know, I think when it came down to it, it wasn't really the stories. I was more afraid of people thinking I did a bad job writing it, but like I've been getting some very surprising feedback. Yeah. And I hear you too, about not wanting to be known for trauma. Like I have, I have bipolar too, and it's really, really hard at first to share that with people. And now I actually try to share it because it can help other people. But when you first have it, it's, I don't have, like, I, like I'm bipolar too. It's, I have bipolar too, where it's like, you, you have had trauma. You are not trauma. You are not trauma. That's right. That's right. It's very much a question of how you perceive everything as much as it is, you know, sort of the societal, the societal awareness of the issue, right? So you are thinking of yourself as responsible for each person's, you know, lack of awareness around the issue, right? So you feel like you need to close that gap in awareness. So when you think about bipolar and and sort of letting people know that you are bipolar or you have bipolar, what you're thinking in your mind is just, what does this person know? Am I going to be rejected or accepted for revealing this? And it's very much the same with foster care. You are taught your entire life to keep this part of you hidden that people will not accept you as a result of this. And so how I think about and talk about revealing myself in this way interpersonally is is just it says so much more about everybody else than it does about me right and whether or not people receive that well has nothing to do with me it has everything to do with their own lens their own experience and it doesn't change my experience for them to not for them to reject what I have said so it doesn't change anything and it took me a long time to get to this place where I know that yeah as far as um, what you said about like not wanting to share because people look at you differently if you grew up in foster care, um, right. were you raised in that way to feel like you were like less than or? Yes, both. When I had, when I grew up in foster care, I had a foster mother that was very much about letting me know that I was beneath the dignity that was afforded to her real children. So um but that wasn't really about foster care in general 
or what people, and what I mean by people is adults, believed about foster care. That was about her being having narcissistic personality disorder and her needing to hold me down. So that wasn't, and I, I did not know that. I thought what she believed must be what all adults believed, what everybody believed about it. So, you know, when you're being abused, your your lens is very small. Your awareness of the issues is very small. So as a result of that, um, I would say that that took me a long time. I would say that took me sort of a long time to come to that realization and a long time being out in the world to understand that that wasn't how people felt about foster kids or foster care in general. That was just about her tool to keep me, you know, to keep me down and harmed. So, yeah, I wonder talking about narcissism, I wonder if she almost wanted to be a foster mother for her own ability to tell other people that she helps. Of course, of course. That had everything to do with why she did it. Um, you know, it, it just it made her feel good to hurt children and her children, her own children were grown. So she started taking in children she felt comfortable abusing. And it had the sort of the dual, you know, it made her feel good because she was getting those societal cookies, you know, those, um, oh, good for you. Oh, you're such a good person. You're such a sweetheart. You know, all of those societal cookies. And as well, um, you know, sort of being able to abuse us on the back end and getting, getting, um, you know, sort of that, I don't want to say joy, but getting that pleasure from that. So yeah, you know, that's exactly why she did it. Yep. Yeah. Unfortunately, sad. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm guess you're gonna be pretty used to sharing it once this is out. I I am. You know, when I first started it, it very much you get it out to your sort of your early readers, and it's never the people that know you the best. It's always the people you're kind of medium distance with because that way there if they learn the story and they hate you you're kind of like okay that's that's fine that's I'll get past that but um you know you, you start getting that feedback and suddenly it, it it you feel very naked out in the world and you're letting people examine you and and all of the things that you've kept hidden for so long and and that can be really scary but it can also be very empowering once you realize you have survived that what can't you do? It changed like so many, so many amazing things have come out of this that I could not have foreseen when I sat down to write it. Yeah. One of the questions I wanted to ask you, I feel like you've already kind of delved into it, but like on a level of like one to 10, one being like, I could have written this in my sleep and 10 mm -hmm. being like, I was becoming immobilized by how hard this was to write, where would you right. put yourself in this experience? I would say 10. I would say this took everything out of me. I would say that opening these boxes that I hadn't looked at just took me down. I would say it took me almost, it took me almost an entire year to write. It took me, um, and I'm, at that point, I am exhausted every day. So I am not myself. I'm not able to go out with my friends. I'm not able to, and I'm already kind of an introvert, but we had just rolled out of the pandemic and I just, I wasn't able to 
go back to life because I was writing this book. I so I had like an extra full year of like pandemic mode of when just not in just depression. Right. So I'm dealing with all of these. I am reliving these things from point of view. Right. Which is great for the book, but terrible for the for my personhood. Right. So it's great. It came out great. I'm very proud of it. But it took a huge toll on me physically, mentally and emotionally. Yeah. I mean, of course it did. It would have to. Right. If you did anything worthwhile, it would have to. So otherwise it it would be an empty book that people couldn't connect to. Exactly. It wouldn't have been worthwhile at all if I, if it just was easy to write. (laughs) My first book was easy to write because I wasn't talking about me. I was talking about my work. I was talking about sort of um, the work itself, what the, what the value system were, what the, what all of sort of the, you know, I was teaching, I wasn't feeling this was an entirely different experience. Yeah. So yes. I've heard before and I don't know any stats about it, but that foster children um, are more likely to be homeless or have drug addictions because once they turn 18, there's not really any resources offered to them. What was that experience like for you? So I do talk about it in the book, but once I aged out of foster care, I was homeless. So I didn't have sort of any resources anymore. And my foster mother was very keen to make sure she had removed any sort of system of family or system of anything that I could lean on um, because she was very interested in sort of throwing me away without any social consequences. So she had sort of been telling stories to anyone who would listen about why I wasn't around anymore and why I was never to be spoken of again. And that's really very common when you deal with narcissists. So I didn't know that at the time, obviously, but like, so I blamed myself, uh, like you do. But yes, that is incredibly common. When we age out of foster care, typically, we don't have anywhere to go. We don't have any social systems. We don't have any. uh, A lot of us, um, once we age out of foster care, we'll find ourselves back in state care through the criminal justice system within four years. Um, a lot of us turn to drugs. A lot of us are very easily preyed upon by predators who are looking to um, any number of very bad things that, that I could not possibly enumerate here in the time. So, yeah. yeah. And you were yeah. in Massachusetts at the time. That's right. I still, I am back in Massachusetts. I live here now. Um, and as an adult, As a child, when I left Massachusetts, I said I would never come back here because my memories of it were so um, were so tainted by how I had grown up. Right now, when I aged out of foster care, I moved to Atlanta and I lived there for about 10 years. And it was really great. It was a great place to sort of rebuild my life. And that gave me so much more opportunity to grow. So I, once I sort of put myself through college and decided on the person I was going to be, it was easier to move back to Massachusetts and say, I am going to help my community do better. I am going to come back to the place where I was hurt and do 
better for the kids who are here now, rather than just leaving and abandoning and saying, well, that's their problem now. I have decided that I'm strong enough to come back and help and help with the fight here. So Massachusetts is a great place when you're thinking about when you're thinking about places where you want to make change. Why? Why do you mean that? Massachusetts. Um, So Massachusetts has are we are very interested in having really good social programs. Um, and that is a place where you, you want people who care about the effectiveness of their social programs when you're thinking about an institution like foster care. Because um, when I was in Atlanta, and this is not a slight at Atlanta at all, when I was living in Atlanta, I thought I had seen everything there was to see, every horrible thing, having, having lived in Massachusetts and in the Massachusetts foster care system. But while I was in Atlanta, I did an internship um, for the foster care system in Atlanta, thinking that would be a way that I gave back and realizing that with the amount of poverty being so much higher, there was just no bottom when it came to the horrors that children could experience. And while I had thought I had seen everything, it turned out that I very much had not. So I needed a place that would be comfortable with the type of change I was asking people to make rather than people who looked at me and said, well, you know, welfare queens and whatever the whatever the narrative is that makes people feel comfortable with not looking at a foster system that is failing all the children. So and do parents get they get money per foster child? That's right. Foster parents. Yep, that's right. Foster parents get money per foster child. And one of the interesting things about that is not only are they getting money per foster child, they're also getting more money if that child has been through more trauma. So the more trauma that child has gone through and or the more medical issues that child has, the more money the the foster parent gets, which is how I was diagnosed with ADHD so early, as opposed to other women and girls specifically who who are misdiagnosed and undiagnosed for so much longer into their adulthood when we're talking about neurodiversity. It's very, it's much more a common experience that women and girls are finding out now that they're neurodivergent as adults, as opposed to me who knew very early on as a result of Massachusetts testing. So yeah, I have a a dear friend of mine who uh, used to be a teacher. She said that parents would come to her with foster children asking if they could diagnose their child um, because they get more money. And she's like, I'm not able to diagnose anyone with anything. Um, That was a common uh, thing. Even if it wasn't a complete true diagnosis, they would fight for it. That's exactly right. Yep. That's exactly true. And it's, it's, it's incredibly sad and it's a very under, it's, it's an unknown sort of fact of chi- of the uh, foster care experience because I have had a lot of people come back to me and be like, well, it's not that much money. And it's like, well, it's, you know, enough. It's enough steady money that sometimes people get into it for very much the wrong reasons. And sometimes people who just like to hurt children see that as a benefit. So, you know, um, unfortunately, the system is very underfunded um, and thus very um, 
can be just rife with abusers and abuses to the system. So not what we would want as adults paying taxes into that system at all. Um, I kind of would like to talk a little bit about having a narcissistic foster mother um, and then getting out of that when you got out of that before you did your healing, were you still having a hard time and pulling in partners or friends that had those same tendencies? I know it's really hard to get out of that cycle. It absolutely is. So that's one of the things that is very common for all of us trauma survivors is one of the first relationships we have where we feel like we are escaping bad families or bad homes, uh, you know, pot to the frying pan in a lot of cases. And that's an incredibly common experience because we are not necessarily um, attracting toxic relationships, but we are comfortable in them and you will attract the relationship that you are the most comfortable in. You will stay in the relationship you are the most comfortable in. And if you have had toxic parents telling you that that's love and that's all you deserve, of course, the next person you're in a relationship with is going to be you know, somebody also toxic and narcissistic and abusive. So yes, that was my experience as well. And that was my experience for a long time until I realized that I was repeating the same patterns for no reason. Um, you know, what kind, what kind and, of work did you like, cause it's like, it's one thing to realize that you're in that space where you're not getting what you deserve, but then mm -hmm. there's that truthful, truthful understanding and going deep that really lets you make those changes. Yeah. What was yeah. that like for you? I think the most important thing that I've ever done is sort of work around self-love um, and work around reparenting myself, right? The most important thing I've ever done is to learn how to reparent myself. Because if I didn't take on that role, I would have continued seeking it out in all of my relationships, right? And I would be that wounded person that is so easy for abusers to see, right? Like you don't know what alarm bells you're sending out to those abusers until you sit there and you sit with it and you examine it and you start to recognize that you deserve more. So when you start mothering yourself, you notice you wouldn't want these things for your own daughter. You wouldn't want these things for your own child. And if you can't look at that or examine that or feel that way, then you will always repeat those patterns. So the biggest thing that I did, the most work that I did was around reparenting myself and yeah. taking that process over. Reparenting I, is a term that I think is getting used a lot more often and a lot of people are doing more reparenting work. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you kind of um, maybe give an example or describe a little bit what that actually looks like instead of just a phrase? Sure. Just dropping it and leaving. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I was really, um, I don't want to talk, how do I want to think this? One of the things that I was doing was I left the relationship with my foster mother constantly thinking that I had done something wrong, that people were mad at me in every situation, right? I was always looking for my flaws. I was always assuming that everyone around me was just tolerating me. Um, I was always thinking that, like, if somebody didn't text me back right away, they didn't like me, if, you know, that I needed to make myself more palatable and acceptable and all of those types of things. When I started realizing that me not fitting in boxes that she wanted me to fit in or that 
my future, you know, that other relationship partners wanted me to fit in. You really have to be alone for a little bit and figure out who you are, who you would love, who you would want to be, who, you know, and once you start becoming the person that you are, you realize that you would love someone like you. And then that is sort of the thing that gets you to the place where you sort of fall in love with yourself, right? You sort of feel like, oh my gosh, this this person that I am is worthy of love. And then the way that you speak to yourself starts to change. And it needs to, because if I'm just in my mind constantly being like, oh, that was dumb, why are you so stupid? Why are you doing it this way? That was so dumb. You know, every, you know, everybody's right to talk about you the way that they did. Like all of those things that I was thinking to myself constantly were constantly hurting me, my inner me, my inner child, previous versions of me. I was so awful to myself because that is all I had been taught. And when I realized I was doing that, I had to stop. I had to examine where that came from. And I knew it wasn't me. So when I think about reparenting myself, I think about my self-talk. I think about telling everybody I'm fine all the time. I don't do that anymore. I don't say yes to everything just to make people happy. I just, I only say yes to things that are for me. It's okay to say no to things. It's okay to be tired. It's, you're not going to miss anything that's for you. It's okay to be at that place. And when I started treating myself with more love and more respect, I found myself doing more and more healing. And then as I grew, the circumstances of my life began to change. The circumstances of like the situations I would find myself in and how I would deal with them. I would see such a huge difference between how I would have dealt with something versus how I do deal with something. And not only just that, but the people around me who used to be just like me suddenly became really like you sort of, you get this ick factor, right? Like when you start to see your worth, people around you who don't see it or or would deny it are suddenly kind of like, oh, no thanks. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm good being alone until I go find other people that, you know, understand how to treat because, you know, and, and honestly, that's, that happens. Once you no longer are accepting, once you have boundaries, once you are no longer accepting of other people's BS, suddenly your life starts changing. And honestly, you find yourself alone for a little bit and that's okay because better things are coming. So reparenting to answer your question in the longest way possible, apparently, no, is, it's- is, about, is about loving yourself, honoring yourself, treating yourself better, feeding yourself, drinking your water, getting your exercise, knowing that you are living in an organic body and treating your mind better. And that's about your self-talk. That's about you know, your mental health and and not overworking your, you know, not working yourself into the grave so that everybody's happy. Because anybody that would need you to change for them to like you, you don't need them anyway, because they are not going to like you regardless. They're just going to keep moving the goalpost. Yeah. So kind of like we were talking about earlier, it's not personal. That's their trauma. Exactly right. It's so hard. I've been having to really work with that lately. Yeah. Uh, and and that's that's a long journey. That's a long journey unless, you know, you get big tips from people that come into your life and are just like, hey, 
Don't talk to yourself like that. Don't talk about yourself like that, you know, um, and, and parenting you again, you'll keep seeking that out no matter what. Like one of my first boyfriends, I was constantly allowing him to treat me like crap. I let his parents treat me like crap. And I was just like, yeah, totally. I will earn my place here. Like, and of course that never happens. Of course it doesn't because that's not where it comes from. It doesn't come from outside because they don't have it themselves. They don't have it to give. So it's just, it takes forever to get here, but it's important to know that that's, that's where you're going. Sounds like too, that one of the early steps would have to be that even realizing that there are people out there that can see differently or can see through a lens of love when That's most absolutely. of your experience is not that. So how do you even know that exists? Right, right. And it depends because you need to be able to see, you need to be able to see red flags as red flags, right? So if I were to say to somebody, yeah, I, I work on trauma healing or I, that's always a thing. Very easy way to tell. If you say trauma and healing to somebody and they go, oh, everybody thinks it's like the word of the year is trauma. Immediately X that person out of your life. There is no reason forever to talk to that person because forever that person or second one, I turned out fine. Anytime you hear I turned out fine and it's somebody advocating for child abuse, they didn't turn out fine. Like it's it's just, it's mind blowing to me because of course that was always the thing that I would hear. Like, oh, everybody talks about trauma. Oh, you know, get over it. I got over it. I turned out fine. And it's like, are you advocating for abuse here? Or are you ad like, because did you turn out fine or are you in a toxic relationship? Did you turn out fine or do you have money trauma? Did you turn out fine or are you in codependent relationships? Like, you know, so it, those are, you need to be able to see red flags for what they are instead of constantly saying, oh, well, this person, I care about them though. I love them and, you know, they love me. They don't. They, some people are just incapable of love and that has nothing to do with you. If they don't love themselves, if they don't love their children, if they're harming their children, I mean, you know, you have to be able to be honest with, you know, what you're looking at. And that's hard. That's hard. There's also too the other side of the coin where people might say they turned out fine, but there's also the people out there that say, to you, I'm sure like, well, you seem fine and you, you're all good now. So it couldn't have been that bad. Yeah, I did. I used to get that. It couldn't have been that bad. And that's interesting too, because it's very much, again, part of the same coin to I turned out fine. So if somebody is unwilling to hold space for someone else's healing, it's very obvious that they themselves have done the healing because I turned out fine or you turned out fine is the same problem. It's still, I am not aware of any self-healing or any self-advocacy or any, you know, um, any journey for healing. Or if you hear somebody say, oh, everybody's in therapy nowadays, same thing, same thing, same problem. Anybody, like everyone, who would, everyone, but you, <laughs> everyone, but you, yeah. <laughs> like anybody who would sneer at healing or, you know, think that they are above someone else who had to heal or had to go through that journey. I've never had, you know, healed people tell me, try to be mean to me or try to tear me down or try to hurt me 
by finding out that that I have gone through this. I've never had that happen. Healed people don't go around trying to hurt other people. That's not a thing. So if you have people like that, those are not people that you need in your life. Those are people who are just absolutely trying to keep you in the crab pit. So <laughs> just to get off on a tangent here. <laughs> this, uh, it's conversations equal tangents. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. My friends call them my diatribes. So <laughs> you know, right? Yeah. Looking uh, back at you know, um, lower school, middle school, all the schools that you went through, like looking back at it, do you see any glimmers of people that saw you? Like maybe at the moment you didn't, but. Yes, no, I did. I did in the moment. And I talk about it in the book as well. So while there were certainly abusers in the schools, including teachers, And I think that if we're all honest, we all had that experience where we knew teachers who were doing shady stuff um, in our own school systems um, that when we look back on it now, we know as 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 sort of healed or healing adults that that was not in any way okay. But there were also definitely glimmers of hope for me, like I had people who saw me and saw what I was going through and knew that they couldn't change that for me, but wanted to offer that validation to me anyway. Like I talk about my um, philosophy teacher, Dan Camilli in my book. And I say that he saw what I was going through to the extent that he knew about it. He wanted me to know that I was going to survive this. Um, He was very clear that he expected me to graduate. Um, And he took time out of his life to and time out of his day to offer me books that I might um, that I might sort of relate to and and that talk about like sort of overcoming things. And he was he just very much saw me in that moment. And so I thank him in my book. um, And he wanted to pick his own, you know, his own dad name. He said he wanted to be Mr. Incognito. I thought that was very funny. (laughs) So, um, you know, I definitely throughout the story saw places where people just saw me and saw that I was a child and, and recognized that that had its own inherent value and treated me that way. Yeah. Um, Like hands reaching down, just. That's right. That's right. And and forward. Absolutely. That's right. That's absolutely right. And I had people all the way in every story I tell in the book, I talk about someone who saw me, which let me know that I was okay, that I was a person. And um, honestly, it made all the difference. So yes, that did happen all the way throughout. And that's why I think one of the takeaways of the book can definitely be, you don't have to put someone who's hurting on your back and carry them up the mountain but you can see where they are and acknowledge where they are especially a child just for one instant and it and it matters it matters to us it matters to be seen it matters to be understood it matters to be heard in a way that lets you know that you aren't alone that you aren't just on a planet where everybody's in their own silo um it matters yeah it also has to be so um, complex for those uh, teachers who actually care and want to help, yet they have these boundaries that they can't really cross. 
it must be like so hard to want to like hug and help or take these children into places of safety yet they can't do anything except give you books and tell you it's okay and give their time yeah yeah and i mean that's that is true that it can be really hard and complicated to to know what the right thing is to do in those situations but it can also just be small things right like it doesn't have again it doesn't have to be like you know you see a kid going through something and you want to take them away from it because that's not even necessarily what they want anyway they don't necessarily want to be taken from their parents because that's traumatic um they don't even if the parent you know i mean the biggest the biggest issue that um children are taken away for from their parents for in end up in foster care is neglect and neglect is a certain standard of a certain standard of care that each child deserves now does it mean that their parents don't love them in any situ- in all of those situations no it means that they don't have the means that we expect each child to be receiving so when a child is removed from foster care the money that we could have given to their family to help them get to that place is given to, instead to foster parents and i'm not saying that that's that we shouldn't give money to foster parents i am definitely saying that that is not the only route here and it is obvious that sometimes fought that it is obvious that sometimes families love those children and just can't take care of them because this is a hard world. This is a hard place. These are hard times. So I think that assuming one narrative for everybody is, is unfair and that more support systems need to be in place when people fall. Now, do I think children should be removed from abusers? Obviously, absolutely. Absolutely every time. Abusers, boop, out. Who could abuse a child, right? So absolutely, I think those kids should be removed. And, you know, those parents need mental mental health support, anything, all the things that they need. But what it can't be is just, yep, that, that parent can't afford a two-bedroom home, so we're not giving that kid back ever. That, it's just, it makes you wonder what the goal is, right? Like, it makes you wonder what the goal here is if this is how we do it. If this is how we spend our very limited funds what are we doing so i mean i think our inability to look at this problem has to do with our own trauma has to do with how we grew up ourselves perhaps our relationship with our own parents so i think our inability to look at this has a lot to do with sort of those big systems you know too big to do anything about um and our inability to look at our at our own traumas so um you know, there are a lot of things that we could fix in the foster care system. Yeah. Um, it obviously needs so much more money and so much more um, study and people who get involved with the care. But also, we need to change how we think about foster kids. So we think about foster kids like they potentially had some part to play in their own tragic circumstances. And whether we want to, whether we want to admit to that or not, it's the same type of narrative and victim blaming that we see in domestic violence survivors. It's the same type of victim blaming that we see when, um, you know, someone is raped, someone is beaten, any of those things. We blame the victim to some extent because we don't like the idea that things could just happen to any of us. We need to find that bad actor. And sometimes we need to blame the victim to do that. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there is kind of a few things at play when we think about the foster care system. Yeah. And then, and then like in the circumstances where a child 
um, perhaps comes from a home of love yet neglect and then they I, moved into another home that might have more money but is still neglectful and traumatic yeah when they Absolutely. perhaps could give the family the original family the same funds that they would give the foster family and that would make a huge difference that would make a huge difference absolutely yeah. they could they could do that but we don't like the idea of government handouts in this country we have a very i don't want to think about this we have sort of a very do i want to say puritanical maybe we have a very patriarchal, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, even if someone doesn't have bootstraps, um, pull yourself up out of this situation. And if you can't, it means that you didn't do what I could do. And that's always been very stunning for me because it always comes from people who didn't have to work for anything, right? The people who are always the loudest about how other people should work for what they got for free. That's, um, and that's, there's these that's the hero stories of the one person that was able to get out of these situations too, of, of like a bad do. neighborhood or thing. And it's like, well, now Absolutely. all these other kids could have done that because this one Absolutely. did. Absolutely. And I talk about that in my book as well, how important it is to me that people don't think that because I was able to, to survive it, me, like how I was able to survive it, that, oh, well, everything's fine then. I guess, you know, everybody should be able to survive it because- it should not be on everybody to be exceptional to survive. Um, you know, I say in the book that I am not the exception to the rule. The rule proves that I am the exception. Like I should not, nobody should be held to a die standard of excellence in order to be able to survive a system that is funded by all of us. That is not, that's not what we want as people. That's not what we want as parents. Um, you know, that's not what we want as community leaders. So, yeah, it's also, and it shouldn't like, be the goal. Medium shouldn't be the goal. That's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, if, if we knew that a certain school that we sent our kids to meant that they would end up in jail or homeless or any of those things, we'd close the school down, right? Like we would, <laughs> we wouldn't just keep sending kids there yeah. and turn it into a factory that just pushes kids into the, to, into the jail system, the justice system system or pushes kids into homelessness or pushes kids into drug abuse that doesn't make any sense the fact that we can't look at this is going to be everybody's future if we can't if we continue to ignore it and sweep it under the rug it's going to be everybody's future one day so when i was um you know uh, reading about you and trying to learn about you before the interview um i i was seeing too that the percentage of foster children that are more likely to die even at a young age is pretty astounding. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, when I was in Atlanta, one of the one of the things that I did was um I sat on the child fatality review board. And to just see the callousness with which it was delivered, we people acted like they were just talking about statistics. Well, like there's these many kids and you know, this happened. And so of course we're very sad about this one kid, but you know, mm, that's to be expected. We're gonna have one or two of these. And that's like, it blew my mind. I, was, I knew that it was nothing that I could do no good there. Like that wasn't what I was going to do, right? They weren't seeing I'm, like single human 
right. people and children. They were just looking Every at num- single, numbers. Exactly. Every single child is enough, just inherently as a child, is worthy of our protection as adults in a civilized community. What else are we doing if that's not true? Who? How can we say that we are good human beings if that is not true, right? I don't care about the politics. I don't care about who you voted for. If you don't think that every child has value, you are not a good person. So, you know, I wasn't going to do my best work there. So I had to move on. Do you think that... Um creating new like systems in Massachusetts and the work that you're doing there can like spread into and feed into be an example for other states or how do you think? So that the thing I had to do work? here first was declare that this had happened to me, right? The first thing I had to do was look at the things that I was hiding because maybe if I told that story loudly and honestly enough, people would say, okay, let's look at this. And what's happening, and that's what I wanted to happen. But what happened instead was people who had read the story came back to me directly and said, die, this happened to me too. And these weren't foster kids. These were just, you know, air quotes, regular people, normal people, people who grew up with their parents, who had dealt with similar or absolutely the same situations that I had overcome in my life. And it was important to me because I realized that so many of us were being held in place by these same or similar traumas that we all felt that we experienced individually that left us feeling ashamed and unable to move forward because we thought it only happened to us. So um, while I thought my job was to loudly and proudly be out with this story, and to some extent it is, it is just as important to recognize and hold space for the fact that these were not my traumas alone, right? So that is one of the things that I am finding to be the most meaningful about the work that I have done. So as a result of that awareness, I spend time in my community schools. I volunteer as a, you know, volunteer librarian. I am make like I am starting a writing club in my local elementary school because it's important for kids to feel seen in the moment. I cannot even tell you how much money I put into the last um into the last scholastic book fair that all the kids were at because like some kids just didn't have any money to buy books and I was like the f they don't. I'm like we are absolutely and I I'm at a great school where they make sure that each kid has enough money for a book, where each kid is allowed to have free breakfast, free lunch. You know, how we think about our kids in our communities matters. And so that's what I'm doing. And maybe maybe it means nothing. Maybe it means everything. But it lets me sleep at night, and that's what I need. I need to be able to be a voice in this community that lets other people know how we can deal with this. Even if you said, even if it doesn't make like a difference, it's like, you know what it feels like personally to have that hand reach out and be seen. And even if that happens for one kid or in your case, hopefully a hundred or more that you can touch, it's like, there is someone that saw. That's right. I saw a little kid who couldn't afford to buy a book and he started to cry 
And I stopped him and I said, how much is the book? And he said, it's $6. And I said, oh, buddy, I've got $6. And so I bought him the book and he turned, he was first grade. He turned around and he thanked me. He goes, thank you for helping me. And I said, oh, buddy, you are worth it. And you should have seen him, like his eyes welled up. Mine are are welling up. (laughs) Like he threw his arms around me and hugged me as tight as he could. And all I wanted him to know in that moment, it was just a book. It was $6. Who doesn't have like, you know what I mean? Who doesn't have just that tiny, tiny, who doesn't have time to tell a child they're worth it? What are you doing that's so important, right? Like, what am I? if not able to see every child who crosses my path and letting them know that I see them. Like, what are we doing? You know, what are any of us doing that's more valuable than that? So I take I take this work and all of my volunteering and all of the work I put into my community really seriously because I know it matters. So. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> of course, of course, children matter. And I think that we need to, I think when we think that they don't matter, it has more to do with how we feel like maybe we were treated as children. So I think the biggest thing we can do is heal our child selves. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, Thank you for your bravery. And um, there's so many things that you've had to put yourself out there, even being a, a queer woman or, you know, it's like you've had to put yourself out there over and over and over Yes, but that bravery has been met in all of these communities with people with their arms out. I haven't been, and that, that's that been helping to make me more and more myself because I reach out and I say, this is me, and people say, perfect. And I'm like, great, let's roll. You know, like, I don't yeah. need people to like, you know, be out there waving a flag. That doesn't help anybody. Like if somebody just says, cool, I see you. What do you think we should do next? And it's like, great, <laughs> like, that's perfect. That's enough. And that has been my experience with people. And that has been my experience with communities. And as long as I can keep doing that, I'm going to keep trying. So, yeah. Um, and then also it's like, yes, you've been received well in these circumstances and it was really freaking hard. Of course it was. Yeah. Of course it was hard. But the hard makes it great, right? Like yeah. the fact that I think the hard makes it great. I think the I think sometimes the work that you do, especially with children, as hard as it is, as as exhausting as it is, I think you can feel how much it matters almost instantly. And that's a kind of work that you can't really get anywhere else. And the same is true of DEI. You can sort of see people realizing it right away. And and that keeps you going. It's very thankless work in general. But the fact that people can have sort of a moment of recognition or someone in their lives that they are immediately thinking of that they could, you know, become more accepting of or more helpful to. Where else can you do that? You know, where else can you get that instant gratification of knowing you changed somebody for the better? Yeah. Heck if I know, I guess that's why I'm here. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, um, interestingly, this is a show about meditation. (laughs) So maybe I'd love to take a second to check in with you about 
the practice that you have, what it started like and how it has helped or served you? Yeah. So I think, I think living a self-aware life is all meditation, right? So I think if you are, I think if you are checking in with yourself, if you are being honest with yourself, if you are saying no to things that aren't for you, all of those things are part of your life practice. All of those things are part of your meditation. It's not just um, the best kind of meditation is the one you use. That's the best method of meditation, right? So, I mean, I have, I know people who meditate while exercising. I know people who meditate while reading. I know, you know what I mean? It's really just about the intentionality you live your life with. And so I think meditation is so much more than just sitting still with our eyes closed and breathing deeply. So the way I heal myself was very meditation focused because it was very wrapped around how how I live intentionally, right? So when I need to, because of ADHD, quiet my mind, or when I need to quiet my heart because of anxiety and trauma, I do turn to meditation because I am the... I am the only medicine I need, right? Like I am the only healer that can heal what what I have within me. Any anxieties or hurts I have within me, it can only come from me because, you know, we'll spend our lives out there looking for that. If we were hurt by our mothers, looking for that mother figure, if we were hurt by our fathers, looking for that father figure, and that can play out in a lot of different toxic, terrible ways. But um we're able to sit with ourselves and love ourselves, even at our worst, that's how we grow. So I would say meditation is a huge part of my life yeah. and a huge part of my healing. Yeah. When you say like, when you need to um, uh, quiet your head or connect with your heart, is there a other than just saying that, is there a any practice that you put forth in those times? So when we think about sort of the rambunctiousness of ADHD and needing to quiet a mind, I would guess sometimes that can be excited mind chatter and I will need to, you know, center down and, okay, I'm all over the place here. I need to, find that one thing because I'm not one thing to focus on because darting around my brain, you know what I mean? Feeling my energy darting around my brain sometimes like a dog that has the zoomies is not going to get me to, or a cat (laughs) or a cat that has the zoomies um, is not going to get me where I am going. And sometimes in my heart, I can just and like I will get this pit of my stomach and my heart will start to race and I will know that that is just that trauma anxiety right um so when I feel that I will just put my feet on the floor or I'll go outside barefooted feel the grass beneath my feet and I will breathe deeply and I'm like okay I am connected to the world this I am okay everything can everything can fall apart and this is still the same i mean or i'll play with my children everything can fall apart and i'm still their mother i am still part of my family i am still 
I'm still me. I'm still this. So I think that um, sometimes just the easiest is sometimes the best. Sometimes the easiest way of quieting ourselves and centering ourselves sometimes has the the best outcomes. So you don't have to get like a whole, <laughs> you have to get, yeah. I know you can see all my plants behind me and everything, but like, you don't have to have a whole room dedicated to meditation or, um, I happen know. to, but I'm very yeah, lucky to have that space. <laughs> you can, but you don't have to, right. to be, to be, you know, doing meditation the right way. Um, meditation, much like spirituality is, is just what you make it. Um, I think a lot of times that perfectionism or that drive to perfectionism that is sometimes born of trauma can really keep us from doing the things that we might need to heal ourselves. And I think that, and I think that that's the thing I constantly try to remind people when we think about spirituality or any kind of religion is just the way you do it is fine. The way you do it is great. As long as you are doing it, you will get better the practice of it. That's why we call it a practice. You're going to get better. You're going to keep doing it. You're going like, don't, don't self-reject, you know? So even like you're saying, like, I am worth being loved. I am worthy of love. I am worthy of respect. I am this person. I'm who I say I am. I'm who I wanted to be. My child self would love me today. I am exactly the adult I needed when I was a child. All of those deep knowings have, even you can hear it in my speech, have a calming effect on me physically and emotionally and mentally. So, I mean, the way that I think about how I love myself has led me to a lot of, a lot of healing. And has really changed the way I am as a member of the community and as a parent. So, because my kids are ADHD as well, <laughs> because it travels in families. Yeah. So anyway, yes, you don't have to be a master to be a practitioner. So, that, and that's true of everything, by the way. That's true of everything. Nothing requires that level of perfectionism anymore. I mean, people used to gatekeep around stuff, but God, not today. They're still doing it today. It's for other reasons. (laughs) Right. Narcissism. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Ding. Narcissism. And that's the funny thing about gatekeeping as well. I don't want to get us off another diatribe here, but that's the thing about gatekeeping. The people who are the biggest gatekeepers are the ones that feel the most insecure about their place. And that's true about every group that we find ourselves or we would put ourselves in as human beings. Um, any identities that we would claim the gatekeepers are the ones who don't feel comfortable there, don't feel like they are there securely. So that's what I mean about people who would be mean to you or gatekeep you, you know, healed people aren't going around doing that, which is why it's always so surprising to me to find people who would call themselves spiritual, um, you know, or masters at something hurting other people, you know, don't, don't go for that. Don't, don't allow that in your life. No, I can't go for that. Can't go for that. Yeah. Nobody's got time for that. <laughs> we're, we're, we're done with that. Um, we're moving on, people. We got real problems to solve. Yeah. So I'd love for you, uh, all of your information, links to your book, links to your um, website or Instagram will all be on the show notes. But I'd love for you to okay. share and tell people verbally also 
where they can find your book or anything that you'd like to share about yourself sure. or people for you people that have so, access of course so um all of my socials are just under my name Di cerullo c-i-r-u-o-l-o um my website is dicerulo.com i'm very straightforward in that way <laughs> nothing fancy for die um and you can follow me at any of my social platforms. I am less on Twitter these days, I would say, because of the community of it has changed quite a bit over the time that I have been alive. Um, but I am on threads now. So if you want to catch me anywhere, you can talk to me and, you know, chat with me or tell me your favorite, um, whether you like Star Wars or Star Trek better. Um, I would love to have those conversations with folks. Let's go. Let's talk about it. <laughs> Great. And then I'm really um, grateful that you are open to leading a meditation for us. So those of us who it's um, in a separate episode. So if people like it or need it, it can be in service of them very easily. They can just come back and download it or find it as they need. Um, what kind of meditation are you going to be leading? So I'm going to be offering a short um, inner child meditation um, because I feel like it's something everybody who's trying to heal needs to do for themselves. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your vulnerability and for opening up and for all the work that you do. And I'm just like really grateful that you wanted to be um, on the show and to share with, with us. Thank you so much for having me. I am so grateful to be here and to, you know, share with your audience about the types of healing we can do on our own. Yeah. Okay. Well, we will see you guys at the meditation. Thanks, everyone. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you stick around for the meditation on the next episode. If you're interested in wellness coaching through a meditative lens or starting your own meditation practice with accountability, check out TheMeditationWard.com. Give us a follow on Instagram at TheMeditationWard and please like, review us, and share with your friends. See you soon.